You are listening to the MZBC Students Greenhouse Podcast. For more information about Mount Zion Baptist Church, go to mzbc.net slash students or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mzbcstudents. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about context. Context is... um, the environment or the, the situation or, or whatever, the, the, the space in which something happens, right? It's, just, it's the time or the environment, the situation which something is said or something is done, and, and, and that, that matters. Context matters. Like, this is why we have celebrity stuff where, uh, you know, like wrestling over seats. Sit by me. Anyway, senior boys can't find a seat. Anyway, um, yeah, so, so context is, is the space or the time when something happens, when something is said, and, and that, that matters. And that's why we get celebrities where it sounds like they said something super, super terrible and listen, until you listen to like the whole thing, and it means something kind of different in context, right? In context, context matters. Maybe you've been taken out of context. Maybe, maybe, uh, that, maybe you've taken somebody else out of context. I don't know. I, I had some uh, people that kind of hung out with in college who had this game. I think they made it up. Um, I never played it because I'm smarter than this. Um, but they basically started this game called copy and paste. All right, we're not going to play it because it doesn't really work in a space like this. This is a game that you just basically, I think, play for the rest of your life. I don't think you can get out of it once you start, which is why I never started because it sounded terrible. So these people, um, they're, they're, they're funny, kind of smart people, right? And then they would, um, basically, the, the idea is that they're just kind of spending a lot of time together. And if anybody who was playing copy and paste um, said anything at all, it could be anything, then somebody else could say copy. I mean, no matter what you said, no matter how weird it was, no matter, you know, you're just telling a story about uh, anything at all. And they can say copy, and whatever you had just said, you have to remember it. Until that same person later, at any, at any point they choose, says paste. And then you have to say whatever it was that you said with the exact same delivery you had previously. So this way it's work. Like if you're, if you're uh, telling a story about maybe you went to the zoo with your little cousin or something, and, and you saw some turtles, right? Maybe, maybe you saw some turtles, and maybe your little cousin said something funny about how turtles smell like mayonnaise. Maybe you're telling a story about how turtles smell like mayonnaise. They can say, copy. And then later, you're on the elevator, like at the, at the they're, they're college students. So we're in the elevator, and these are mostly college guys. And so maybe they wait until the moment you're on an elevator in the library, and a couple of girls come on the elevator, and the guy next to you goes, <clears throat> paste. <laughs> and you have to say, turtles smell like mayonnaise. Just like that, you can't get out, or they can punch you in the face, right? That's a terrible game. I never played this game. I mean, and so one, one time uh, later, a couple of years later, right, we, um, couple, uh, a couple in this group got married, right, and which was hilarious in and of itself. And all of these copy-paste people are at this wedding. They're all the, the wedding party, right? And I'm, I'm supposed to be trying to, like, officiate this wedding, right? And all these copy-paste people are copying, pasting everything that's said constantly to one another. And this is, you know, weddings are supposed to be kind of, like, formal, right? A little bit, maybe. And, 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 and everything we were doing, people were saying the weirdest stuff out, like, because they're getting pasted all over the place. And, and they would, like, we're trying to have, like, a wedding rehearsal, and, like, the bride's walking down the aisle, and some guy says, paste, and somebody's like, I love, <laughs> he said, he said, <laughs> Oh, man. He said something like, he said, I love the way gorillas look. 
Like, just like, I mean, and I'm trying to be serious, like officiate a wedding, but there's all this stuff being taken out of context, and, and I know that, but when it's, it's set down in the wrong context, it doesn't make any sense. It's hilarious. Um, and I'm, some of you might dare to play copy and paste, but I'm not going to participate with you because that sounds like a bad plan. Uh, so turtles smell like mayonnaise, and I don't really love the way gorillas look. Um, it's, it's, it's important to know the context in which things are said. It's important to know the context in which things are done because if you take it out of context and you copy and you paste it somewhere else, it doesn't mean the same thing. What I think happens to us, students, what I think happens to us when it comes to, when it comes to Christmas, you like that joke? It was funny, wasn't it? You like that. What happens to us when it comes to Christmas is that I think a lot of us have been taught the Christmas story, Right? You know the Christmas story, and, and you know, in, in those days, Caesar Augustus decreed that, you know, like there's this story. And God, you know, sends some angel, you forgot his name, it's Gabriel. And, and, and he comes and, and talks to Mary, and then there's some conversation with Joseph. You know, it fits in there somewhere, right? And, and then Jesus is born, and there's angels and shepherds. And then there's wise men at some point, and there's the star, and the whole deal, right? And it's a nice little manger scene thing, but it kind of feels like, God just randomly decided, yeah, now's, now's a good time for, to send Jesus. It's just, yeah, why not? Like, how, about, how, about, how about now? It feels kind of out of context. At least it did for a long time for me where I understood, the, I, I knew the Christmas story, but I didn't know the context about it. I didn't know where it, where it came or how it, what it fit into. And what, what's been happening for me, students, really because of Greenhouse, the last few years speaking in Christmas Greenhouse, um, God's been focusing me on the context in which Christmas happened, and it's, it's provided so much more depth and so much more weight to the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. And so what I want to do for you tonight, what I want us to do together, is look at the context in which Christ came. And my hope is that when you kind of get just a glimpse of the, the broader context in which Jesus came, that your appreciation and your, your, the weight with which you hold the Christmas story is going to be more significant. I want you to understand the context in which Jesus came. All right? So we're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight, pretty much the entire Old Testament. Um, but eventually we're going to get to Malachi, and you don't know where that is in your Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you want to find your way to Malachi, we're going to get there eventually. But before that, we want to start a little bit further back. Uh, and work our way up to it. So I think that one of the problems um, that, that a, lot of, a lot of us face, especially if you're a, a relatively new Christian, like, uh, there's, there's teenagers in our student ministry who've come to Christ uh, pretty consistently. I think there's been like five or six of you guys in here um, just this semester, I think, uh, that have come to Christ. And so when you take a hold of your Bible and then like, it doesn't, you're not really sure how it all fits together. They probably should fit together, and there probably should be some storyline or common thread that holds all this together, but you're not sure of that. And if you became a Christian when you were eight, you're, you're still probably not sure because you have a bunch of Bible stories that you're not at all aware of how those things fit together. A lot of what you know about the story of God is out of context. So we're going to cover a little bit of that all leading up to the coming of Christ, and I hope that provides some significance for you. So um, all this starts way back in the beginning, right? In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God created everything that exists out of nothingness. He spoke and things existed. He created the heavens and the earth and then plants and animals and people and all the things, right? And so he put Adam and Eve in a garden and Adam and Eve brought something else to the garden on their own. They brought sin. So God created and he created it to be perfect and then they broke it basically. They chose to go against God. They brought sin into the world of their own accord. God didn't put sin in the world. They put sin in the world when they chose to go against God. And everything from that moment was categorically broken. 
Humanity was twisted. Our, 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 our nature was, was shifted because of what they did because of their choice. And from that moment, from the moment they made the choice to sin, God made the choice to redeem. From the moment they made a choice to, to sin, God made the choice to come after us, to come and fix all that had been broken, to redeem all of creation and a people. So God promised to make, hey, look, listen, we're going to have a That's going to be sermon space. This is going to be Britain space. <clears throat> Shh. Anyway, so God created. That's what we're talking about, in case you missed it. God created, the people brought sin into the world. God said, I'm, I'm not okay with sin being in the world. I'm going to redeem all of this. And before that, I'm, I'm going to make a specific, I'm going I'm to call out a people to be my people. He said, I'm going I'm to do this work. I'm going I'm to do something that, that only I can do. I'm going to bring out a people to be my people. And he made a covenant with a guy named Abraham. He spoke to Abraham and he said, hey, Abraham, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this covenant with you because I've found you to be faithful. And, and what's going to happen is that I'm going to build a, a nation out of your family that's so numerous it can't be counted. Like, like more numerous than the sands of the shore, and that's going to happen. And Abraham's like, I'm really old. I don't think that's going to, I'm gonna, not going to be able to make a, have enough kids to do that. And so he didn't. He had one son and this, that, 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 that this nation was going to be built out of. He had one son this nation was going to be built out of, and God began this work of turning this one little family into this nation of Israel. This nation of Israel grew from a family into this huge nation, numbering just hundreds of thousands of people while they, ended up, while they were in slavery in Egypt. They ended up in slavery in Egypt, and, and during their 400 years of slavery, they just grew and grew and grew into this huge nation under this covering of slavery, and they called out to God for him to rescue and so God answered, and he said, I'm coming, I'm, 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 I'm for you, I'm for people, I'm for my people. And so he came, and he brought Israel out of slavery by these insane miracles. Like, you've heard of this stuff. Like, you've heard of these plagues. You've heard of the parting of the Red Sea. You've heard of, that maybe you've not, but you, that God, he's doing all this stuff in this miraculous fashion, showing himself to be powerful, showing himself to be faithful, the God who is able to do more than we could ever imagine. And he's doing all of it for this people to rescue them and to show them who he is. He appears to them in this pillar of fire by night, and this, this cloud by day, and they're following him, and he's manna's raining down from the sky. Like, he's taking care of every need for them. Just bringing them out by his hand and saying, you're going to be mine. He makes a covenant with that people to be his, and they're going to love him, and he's going to love them. And there's just going to be this relationship there, and almost immediately the people start proving themselves to be faithless. God gives this law. He gives them this, uh, this um, structure for how their relationship with God is going to work, and almost immediately, almost immediately they fail. Almost immediately, God proving himself to be faithful. They, they saw the Red Sea part, and almost immediately they proved themselves to be faithless in the, in the face of his faithfulness. They fail. They fail because that's what people do. They're faithless because that's what people, that's what we do. We are faithless people. We fail. And it all goes back to that thing that we talked about in the beginning when people sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, and it twisted something in us. It changed our nature. It made us people who have a propensity to sin against God, to go our own way. And these people did it, and they saw manna rain down from heaven, and they still sinned. They saw, they saw these plagues happen, and the, and the mighty hand of God bring them out of Egypt, and they still were faithful. 
If you're one of those people that, man, you just wish you could see God do something just miraculous, and then that would, that would solve your faith issue, that you wouldn't have any more questions about God, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have that sin issue anymore. If God just showed up in some tangible way, yes, you would. God doesn't show up more tangibly than he did for the nation of Israel when he brings them out of slavery, and they still were faithless because we are faithless people. God shows himself to be faithful. We show ourselves to be faithless. And so the story goes on. The people of God prove this of themselves, and they begin a cycle with God that stretches all the way across the rest of the Old Testament, this cycle where God shows himself to be faithful, and then people show themselves to be faithless over and over again. It starts with this period of Judges. It's a book of Judges, and it tells a story, and it's just a, it's not that exciting of a story because basically what happens is every, like, paragraph, people mess up. And God sends somebody, another judge, to come. A judge is kind of like a rescuer. And, and they come and rescue them, bring them back to God. And they try to walk with God for a little while, and they fail again, and they fall away. And God sends another one. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to rescue you. I'm bringing you to myself. I'm after you. I'm for you. God's proved himself to be faithful over and over and over again. And these people keep falling away over and over and over again. It's this old story. It's your story. The story of God coming after you and proving himself to be faithful to you and drawing him to yourself, drawing him to himself and saying, I, I want you, I'm coming for you, I want to redeem you, I want to restore you. And then maybe you walk with him for a little bit and then something slips and something happens or somebody, anything. And then you prove yourself to be faithless all again in the, in the face of his faithfulness. That's the story of God. So the period of Judges happens where God is doing this over and over again, and then Israel decides, hey, we want a king, and so they get a king for themselves, and then they just follow kings who lead them further and further away from God. And every once in a while, God does something where he brings them back, and they try to walk with God for a little bit, and they prove themselves to be faithless once again, and they fall away. They fall away to the point where it gets so bad that the people of God, God's special people, the people that he brought out of Egypt and, and the nation that he created to be his holy people, got so bad that in Second Kings, it talks about, the people of God doing the exact same awful, insanely awful stuff that the people were doing before them that were pushed out of the land that God, God um, did away with. said that they, were, they, were, they got so, so far into worshiping other gods and so far from the one true God, they were sacrificing their children to these other false gods. And that's like so far out of bounds for me. Like I can't understand how you get there, but that's how far away they got. You've been pretty far away from God, but these people were further and God still proved himself to be faithful in the face of their faithlessness. So during this period of kings, eventually God starts using um, prophets. Prophets were, were people who were the mouthpiece of God. They spoke for God. He would speak to them and they would speak audibly to the people. And they didn't really have that complicated of a message. Their message was essentially a warning. These prophets came and they warned and said, look, if you're, if you're going to continue going down this path, there's going to be judgment. Like if you remain separated from God, there's going to be judgment. It's coming. Don't choose judgment. Turn to God. Follow him. Well, what are you doing? Why are you going that way? Show yourself to be faithful and follow him. Same message to us. But if we go our own way and we walk away from God and we, we, we continue to go in our sin, not turning to God, there's judgment that's coming. And the plea of God's word, God's desire for us is not to continue on walking towards judgment, but to turn from him and allow him to, to bring us out of all of that awful and restore us. That's his desire for you. It's his desire for them. I didn't listen. The prophet spoke. I didn't listen. Maybe they would for a little while and they'd fall again. Things would just get worse and worse and worse. See, the, the prophets um, were focused on really one key issue. 
They were focused on heart change. See, that, that law, that, that system that God had given the people to, and for how they were going to relate to him was built on two pillars. It was built on two separate kind of pillars and that, that were supposed to be conjoined, but sometimes weren't. And the one, so one was ceremonial. One was a ceremonial pillar. There was, a, there was rules about the way that ceremony was supposed to be done. It was, it was the way they were supposed to gather together, the, the way that they were supposed to perform these sacrifices. There was kind of a, a structure and a, and a ceremony to a, to a lot of it. So there's a ceremony side. But there's another side that was, that was an obedience side. It was a heart side. So whether it was ceremonial worship, there was also private worship, personal worship, heart worship. Where they were supposed to be loving this God and in love with him and following with their hearts, obeying him with their lives, wanting to live lives that honored God and show up and do the, and do the, the, the ceremony side of it as well. But what they ended up doing was they got, they got far enough to, to go through the motions of the ceremony. They'd show up, they'd bring the sacrifice or whatever. It probably wasn't the, it wasn't the sacrifice. Usually some kind of jacked up version of a sacrifice, but they tried, right? And so they kind of, they did just enough to squeak by and say, yeah, check that box off. When it came to this pillar over here, this pillar of obedience and heart change and loving and following God personally and individually, they weren't doing that even a little bit. And the prophets kept saying this. They said, look, you're, you're, you're showing up and you're bringing the sacrifices. You're checking off the attendance box, but God doesn't care because your heart's not in it. God doesn't care that you're showing up and that you come to temple every once in a while because the rest of the time, like your entire life is contrary to God. You're not living for God. You don't love God. You're as distant from God as you could possibly be. It doesn't matter if you show up in attendance and get your box checked. That doesn't matter. God's not interested with their attendance if it's lacking the heart change. That's the same for us. God's not interested in you showing up to Greenhouse. God's not super pumped with, with you for, for showing up at Greenhouse or maybe coming to a small group or something and, and, and maybe coming on Sunday morning and, and saying, yep, I did, I did my church time this week. I did it. I, can't, I went to church twice this week. Man, I'm killing it. God's got to be excited about that. God's not interested with your ceremonial behavior. God's interested in your heart. God's interested in the condition of your heart and whether, what, what, whether your heart is turned toward God. If you, are, if you are actively trying to pursue him in the same way that he pursues you, God wants to be in a loving relationship with you. He doesn't want you to attend something. Yeah, he wants you to attend, that, yeah, but with the right motivation. With the wrong motivation, attendance doesn't matter. The motions don't matter. It doesn't matter if you go through all the motions that you can think of that you think Christians are supposed to do. If you go through those things, you do all those things with the wrong motivation, you fall in the same camp with the nation of Israel who is as far from God as they could possibly be. And there's these prophets crying out for them saying, please stop going through the motions and love this God who loves you. God's never interested in you going through the motions. So they did, this, they did the behavioral worship, and they forgot about everything. Oh, they, they didn't, uh, they, they did the behaviors, they weren't actually worshiping. And then, so um, the prophets basically kept saying, look, if you continue down this road, if you keep going through the motions and you don't really turn your heart to God, judgment's gonna come. And it did, it did. And in 586 BC, um, like historical fact, like this isn't like, I should have told you dates for all this stuff. That would have helped. I think, I think it's significant to know like there's actual like solid dates on all this stuff. Sometimes you think that the Bible is just this big fairy tale, but all this stuff's like historically verifiable. You can go dig it up out of the dirt. Like it's real stuff that's, there's inscriptions on things that, that 
corroborates all this stuff that wasn't there before. You know what I'm saying? If the Bible says that somebody exists and then 2,000 years later we dig up a thing that says that they existed in this year, that corroborates the Bible, right? I, sh- I wish I had told, I should have told, I'll, maybe I'll put notes on the interwebs or something about dates and things. But in 586, it finally is, it, the judgment is finally concluded. Where God um, finally allows Israel to be completely uh, decimated, pretty much. They're, they're, they're captured, they're, they're conquered, and the, the, whoever left, whoever survived it, was taken out of the land that God had promised for them. They'd given them as their possession. Take them out of that, and they were exiled into another land. And the temple was burned down, was, 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 was crushed, just basically turned to dust. So this, see, this ceremonial thing was so significant to them. They would come to the temple. They wanted to be seen in the temple. They wanted to go through the, the behaviors at the temple. And a part of God's judgment was to remove the temple. Isn't that interesting? That, that, that God's, the, the temple was supposed to be where God's literal presence was. Like God literally tangibly showed up and dwelt in that temple. Like, like physically, like, like he was, that was his, that was, the temple of God, it was the house of God, it's where he was, and they would so go to that, and they wanted to be around that, but they didn't have the heart with it. And so God said, I'm tired of, I'm tired of this ceremony, I want the heart. And so when God allowed the nation of Israel to be captured, he also allowed the temple to be destroyed, which meant that they didn't have the option of ceremonial worship anymore. He's like, hey, if, if I'm really tired of you going through the motions, I've been asking you to stop going through the motions, so I'm just gonna remove the thing that enables you to go through the motions. What are you gonna do now? You only got one pillar left, so that's your only option. You can't do all the sacrifice stuff anymore. You can't do any of this stuff in this temple anymore because it's gone because I let some people crush it. And uh, so now you just got me. So you can either love me or not. I wonder what would happen. Like, I wonder if, 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 you're, if your option for going through the motions, like if, if your option for greenhouse, if your option for some of, that, some of you that happens, sometimes your schedule doesn't allow you to be in church for a little while. And you're just left with this option, this only thing left. You can't just go through the motions. Now you actually have to pursue God on your own as an individual. If you've been in that situation, you haven't had the opportunity to, to go through the motions. How is your faith? If God removed your option to, to gather together like this, if, you, if there was no more band, there was no more speaking, there was no more greenness, there was no more Mount Zion, and you were just kind of on your own, would you still pursue God? What would you be left with? If you took out your attendance from all of your connection to God this week, if you took out your attendance, how much effort would be left? So 50 years, this, um, the, the people of Israel are uh, in exile. Temple's gone. And then finally, they, uh, um, the, the ruler there allows a little remnant to come back. A remnant is kind of like if you're making a, a project with construction paper and, a, and like the scrap that falls off the edge, right? There was a scrap that kind of fell off the edge, and that was all that was left. And the scrap that fell off the edge was the remnant, and they were allowed to go back. It was 150,000 people. That's it. Out of the millions that there was supposed to be, there was 150,000 people that went to go back to this 20-mile circle of dirt um, kind of around the temple in Jerusalem. That was all that was left, this beautiful nation of Israel that that God was supposed to be. That was supposed to be his glory. They got 150,000 people on this 20-mile piece of dirt around a ruined temple. That's it. 
And then some, some, a couple more prophets come, Ezra and Nehemiah come, and, and they help the people kind of patch up the temple a little bit so they can kind of start figuring out how to do uh, the, the ceremony side of thing better again. And they start teaching them the, the word. They start teaching them the law. And since there was this time where there wasn't the option to go through the motion, what people had started to do was actually pursue God a little bit on their own. They had started to move away from just going through the motions, and they'd started actually trying to turn their heart to him a little bit. And then we get to Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was the last prophet of the Old Testament. This is like the last guy that, that had a word from God for the people of Israel, and then it shut down. God shut it off. It's like shut off these prophets, shut off the word of God for 400 years. So this book of Malachi is really significant. If it's the last word that was going to come through, it encapsulates, put an end cap on the entire Old Testament, and then there's 400 years of silence after it. Then I want to know what that book says. Look with me in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, what he means there is he said, look, I haven't completely destroyed you because I don't change. Remember that covenant from Abraham? I said, I made a covenant with that guy, Abraham, a couple of thousand years ago that I was going to make a nation for myself and I'm not going to break my covenant because I don't break my promises. So I don't change and that's the only reason you're still here. That's harsh. He goes on, he says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. That's my, my, my law, my rule. And have not kept them. From the days of your fathers, like from your ancestors to now, you have turned aside from my statutes and hadn't kept them. This is harsh. Like he's saying, you, you are one, you and all your ancestors are a bunch of failures. You're some faithless people. And we're, we're lumped in with that. We are some faithless people. And at this point in this passage, this isn't very positive. He's saying, look, the only reason you're still here is because I made a covenant with Abraham. You and all your ancestors are a bunch of failures. Like, you, you fail me over and over and over. You fail me so many times. I've, no matter how, what I did, you failed. You've proved yourself to be faithless. It sounds like God is about to deliver, like, the final verse, the final, like, crushing blow and say, so I'm done. The only reason you're still here is because I made this covenant with Abraham. You've failed, you've failed to follow me over and over and over again. And it sounds like the next word would be, so I'm out. So fine. Do you think I, just, do you think I would be justified if he had said that? Do you think, like, after, after, the, after this, like, the entire Old Testament is the story of people proving to be faithless and the faiths of God's faithfulness. I think if he had just said, so I'm out, y'all. I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to mess with you for a little while. I'm just, my, my, like, I know I'm infinite or whatever, but there's, there's, there's only a limited amount of patience, and the Old Testament worth is enough of my patience being drained. So I'm, I'm just going to take a break. You guys just figure life out for yourself now. It sounds like God's about to abandon them. Look, look at it. Look at Malachi 3, uh, the back half of verse 7. So he says, so return to me, and I'll return to you. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He's like, the only reason you're still here, I made a covenant with Abraham. You failed me over and over and over again. But if you'll return to me, I will return to you. If you'll come back to me, if you'll turn away from all of your mess and you'll chase after me, I'm there. I'm not going to, if you, if you turn to me and try to pursue me, I'm not going to stand far off from you like, hey, I got to have a minute, all right? I got, I'm just going to cold shoulder you for a second because you guys are a bunch of yahoos. Okay, just give me a minute. 
He's not, he's not like that. It's not like when, when you like, do something to your mom and she's kind of like cold for the next two days. It's not like that. She's not like your mean boyfriend, okay? It's not like this. God's like, look, if you will just come, I'm here. If you'll return to me, if you'll turn, not a, I know you've given me hundreds of years of faithlessness. And if you'll turn to me, I'm right there. That's the same message to you, you bunch of faithless people, right? That's the same message to me. This, I'm a faithless failure of a person. And God says, look, if you'll return to me, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll return to you. I'm right there. Christians in the room, man, if, if you have been distant from God, this Malachi 3.7 is hope. If you're a Christian in the room and you've been distant from God, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad things have gotten, Malachi 3.7 is hope. Because if God can extend that kind of offer to the people that he was extending it to, he can extend it to you as well. He does extend it to you as well. If you're not a Christian in the room, same offer. He knows everything that you've done. He knows how far you've gone. He knows how faithless you've been. He knows the totality of your sin, past, present, and future. And he says to you, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you. I love you more than all of your mistakes. I love you all more than all of your sin. You're not going to spend all of my patience with you. Your sin's never going to outweigh the grace that he wants to give you. And so, so the story goes that God created, created people to have a relationship with him. And they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed. And then he said, look, if you, if you come back to me, I'll come back to you. And then he went quiet for 400 years. Why do you think he did that? He said, if, you, if you'll come back to me, I'll come back to you. And then he went and hid. You ever play hide and go seek? Remember being a kid playing hide and go seek? And it's the excitement of being searched for. Whenever I, I remember um, like getting in these little nooks and stuff and, and, and getting like, I'm, I'm small. I can get in tiny spaces, right? And so I remember getting in these hiding speak, seek places and, and thinking, nobody's ever going to find me here. <laughs> And I would get out of the super great hiding space and find like a less good hiding space because I wanted to be found, right? It's weird. Like if, if you hide too good, people like call the cops. I mean, that's not good. So you want to be found. And so God, God goes silent. Listen, listen, I think, I think that, I mean, this, this kind of is me, but I, I think that the reason that God hid himself, shielded himself, didn't speak in the same way he did for 400 years is that he wanted those words in Malachi 3, 7 to just resonate, to just keep resounding for all of that time. Like, if you will come to me, I'll come to you. And so they're turning to God and saying, I'm coming for you. Where are you? I'm coming for you. Where are you? They're searching for him. And he's like, no, not yet. <laughs> right? And then they search harder and harder. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. I think, I think God hid himself because he wanted to be found. I think he hid himself because he wanted to be searched for. But the promise still stands. If you, if you come for me, I'll come for you. If you return to me, I'll return to you. The promise stands. See, the beauty of this is this a promise and an invitation. He sent it a promise and an invitation. He said, if, if you do this, I will do this. It's an invitation and it's a promise. See, this is, and this is the context in which Christmas happens. This is the context in which Christmas happens. Where God has said, look, if you, if you come for me, if you search for me, I'm going to be there. I'm going to find you. I'm going I'm to come. He says, <laughs> Oh, man, return to me and I will return to you. 
And so the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden returned one night in a manger. He returned to come for us, these faithless, messed up people. The God who had walked in the cool of the garden came to walk with us again. He came back for us, to rescue us, to save us. Because he wasn't done with us. Because he wasn't angry with us. Because he loves you more than your stuff. He loves you more than your sin. He loves these people more than their sin. And if he says, if, if you return to me, I'll return to you. Christmas is the celebration that God held up his end of the deal. See, I don't think God, God doesn't. He doesn't wait for you to return to him, for him to be there to, to make his return. He went ahead and made his return on Christmas. He makes this triumphal entry with his angels singing and shepherds running across fields. He makes this triumphal entry because he returned for us. And he says, look, I'm here. I'm here. All you got, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not hiding any. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm right here. I'm, I've, I've returned for you. Now it's all that's left is to see if you are going to hold up your end of that invitation. Return to me, I'll return to you. He's already done his part. What's left is if you're going to do yours. Christmas is a celebration that God held up his end of that promise already. And the invitation waits for you, whether you will turn to him or not. I hope that you've made that choice. If you haven't, that invitation waits. If you've been distanced for a long time and you're, man, you, 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 you think or you know that you're a Christian, and it hasn't looked like that for a long time. God says, return to me and I'll return to you. He's already done his part. Would you do yours? Just right now, like in your, in your mind, would you, would you let go of some of that sin? Would you have a conversation with God about how far you've gone and how far, how bad things were? Would you return to him just right now where you sit? Maybe just in the quietness of your own heart, you just start praying and having that conversation with God right now. But if you're not a Christian, you know there's never been a moment where you've done that. They offer stands. If you'll return to him, he's already done everything he can to return to you. He's been waiting on you your whole life. He's extended grace to you when Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of your stuff. This baby came for you to live a life that could be offered for yours. And he made that offer already. That gift has already been wrapped up. It's been sitting under the tree, and it's just waiting for you to accept it. All that's left is for you to hold up your end of that invitation. Will you turn to him? If you, want, if you want to talk to somebody about how to do that, there's a whole lot more that we'd like to tell you about. We're not going to push anything down your throat. We're not weird, all right? So if you, if you would have questions about that, that's what all these adults in here are for. That's what all these other these friends that invited you, that's what they're for. Just ask them. They're not going to push anything on you. They just want you to know the hope that they have. Return to me and I'll return to you. Let me pray for you. God, um, I'm thankful that at no point in the trajectory of this mess did you bail. At no point in, in our faithful, faithlessness, and in, in no point during Israel's faithlessness, did you say enough is enough and I'm out. Thank you for sticking it out with us. Thank you for loving us more um, than we could possibly imagine. God, my prayer for myself and for every single one of us in the room is that whatever distance, however small or however grand that exists between us and you, that tonight, by the time we walk out of this room, that we will be committed to return to you. For the first time, or for the first time in far too long, God, help us to return to you because you have promised to be right there to meet us. God, we love you. It's your sons in prayer. Amen.